Take your Bibles this morning. Turn to Mark chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 28 through 34. My prayer, my hope for you is that you would truly, deeply, and intimately know the love of God. That it would not just be here in your minds as something that you know, but that I would travel down the 18 inches to your heart so that you could say that I truly know and have experienced the love of God. My words today are going to fall short. But I hope and I pray that the Spirit of God opens our eyes to see more fully, more clearly, and more beautifully who God is. In the passage that we're looking at today, we're diving into a passage that doesn't just engage our intellect or our knowledge about God, but it engages our very, very heart. And this passage directs us from our head to our heart. And I pray that the Spirit of God would help us connect what we, what we have up here in our minds to what we have here in our hearts. Now, if you've been following along with us in the Gospel of Mark, by the time we get to Mark chapter 12, Jesus is a couple of days away, maybe two at most, from being crucified. The chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, and the elders have been trying to incriminate Jesus in order to kill him. They want him dead because they've disrupted or he's disrupted their religious traditions and the system that they've developed on the backs of the religious system that makes them wealthy and rich. And so they've tried to incriminate him by asking questions from the Torah, and the Torah, when we speak of the Torah, we're talking about the first five books of the Bible, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And if they can get him to say something that will incriminate him, they'll have cause to do away with him. But they just can't seem to trap him. But they keep trying. And this brings us to the passage that we're looking at today in Mark chapter 12. So I hope you have either your Bible with you, or you can have a Bible you can turn on, or I hope you have it in your head, but most importantly, I hope that you have the Word of God in your heart. But the first thing I want to show you from Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 28, is the trap that was set for Jesus this day. And we read this, and one of the scribes came and heard them disputing with one another. That's Jesus and the other scribes. And seeing that he answered them well, talking about Jesus, asked him, this is this fellow who now comes along, which commandment is the most important of all? Now here's what we need to understand about this. The scribes were the self-proclaimed experts of the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They claimed there were 613 commandments in the Torah. Some were definitely there and real, 
other commandments were what they had imposed on the scriptures that weren't actually there. But they turned them into commandments. And as experts of the law, these highly touted intellectuals would sit around and they would debate which of these 613 commandments was most important. And so here now in this story, here comes the scribe, and he knows that they've been trying to trap Jesus. He hears the dispute that's going on between Jesus and those that are challenging him. And they've been trying to trap Jesus by asking trick questions that will incriminate him in accordance with the Torah. But they've been completely unsuccessful. But this scribe seems that he has a question that'll do it. He has a question by which Jesus will incriminate himself. This will finally get him. So he asks the question, which commandment is the most important? Which commandment is above all other commandments? Here's the thing. Jesus has 612 chances to get it wrong. At least according to them. He thinks he's smart. He's got the question that will trip Jesus up. Finally, they will get him. And now I want to show you what the most important commandment of all is. So read along with me starting at verse 29. Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This commandment that Jesus states here is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. It's a passage that every Israelite, every Jew knew very well. This passage of scripture had, was what came to be known as the Shema. And really that word simply means to hear or to pay attention, to listen. But what had happened over the years, this had become a confession that every devout Jew would recite every morning and every evening with their prayers. And it was a reminder of who their God was and their relationship with God. And it was Moses who first spoke this commandment to Israel and was intended, the purpose of this was intended to keep Israel faithful to God. Let me unpack this just briefly for this morning. That first statement when Moses said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, is a declaration that Israel's God was one and the one true God. You see, the nations that surrounded Israel worship a multitude of gods, gods of their own making. They had a God for almost everything. And so whatever you needed or desired or wanted, you had to pray to a different God. 
But all of this was idolatry. It was all sin. But here, God had shown himself to be the one true God by bringing Israel out of slavery from Egypt and bringing them to the promised land by supernatural means. He showed that he was the one true God by the supernatural plagues that came upon Egypt. He showed who he was, that he was the one true God by splitting the Red Sea, allowing Israel to walk through on dry ground and then having these walls of water close upon Egypt's army, destroying them all. He proved that he was the one true God as he led them through the wilderness, being a pillar of cloud by day for them and a pillar of fire for 40 years as he led them through the wilderness. He proved to be the one true God, providing Israel with manna from heaven and the endless supply of quail for 40 years. He proved to be the one true God while they were in the wilderness by preventing their clothes and their sandals from wearing out for 40 years. Talk about needing a wardrobe change. But all by all of this, he proved that he was the one true God. Whereas the other nations around Israel worship multiple gods for different needs and none of them real, Israel's God was one God who was real and had provided his people with all things. And Israel had entered into a covenant relationship with God. He was their God and they were his people. And so this commandment to Israel was based on that covenant relationship with God. Our God is the one true God. We are in covenant with him. And therefore, we must love him with all our heart, all our soul, and all our strength. This is what Jesus told the scribe here in Mark 12, was the most important commandment above all. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus doesn't just give him the most important commandment. Jesus doubles down and gives him the second one as well. Verse 31, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. This commandment was found in Leviticus 19.18. And what Jesus has done, we'll see it here in a moment, he has confounded this scribe. So let's look at his response. Verse 32. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. See, typically when one of these scribes would call him teacher, it was not in way of honoring who he was. It was actually a trap, right? They were kind of, they were disingenuous in it. But this guy, this guy seems to have the right, has come to the place where he's like, no, he, okay, 
you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Here's the thing. You see, in their religious system that God had implemented through the covenant in the Old Testament, Israel was commanded to offer sacrifices to God. And there are a number of laws of things that they were supposed to do. And here's the thing. You could do them all and never really do it from the heart. It's just checking boxes, right? And that's why this scribe now says, yeah, you know what? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Because you see, you could do the latter without loving God, right? But when you love God and you do this, it's a whole different attitude, And so as this scribe reflects on what Jesus has just said, it seems he not only can't argue with Jesus and not only affirms what Jesus has just said, he actually bolsters and strengthens what Jesus has just said by saying, you're right. Loving God with all your heart, mind, and strength and one's neighbor as oneself is much more than mere ritual. And then in verse 34, we read here, and it says, And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So for the first time, it seems that a scribe is not only conceding to Jesus willfully, but he couldn't help but agree with him. So the scribe says, you're right. And Jesus says, you're close. After this, these scribes, these groups of people that were coming against Jesus didn't dare ask him any more questions because not only were they not able to incriminate him, But Jesus was beginning to break them down. And now as we look at the story, there's a few questions I would like to address that aren't in this text, but that might be ruminating in your mind and certainly did in mine as I thought of preaching this. What are the implications of this passage for us? Here's the first question I actually want to ask. In this passage, Jesus says the most important commandment in all of scripture, commandment, note that commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So the question I want to ask is this. How can God demand to be loved? 
How could God command us to love him? Is God a tyrant by commanding to be loved? Isn't that abusive? Could that actually be considered love? In order to understand this, I have attempted in my own small mind to try to answer this question. So let me begin by clarifying what is not the reason he commands us to love him. He does not command us to love him because it fulfills a need in him. We need to understand that. God is not insecure and needs us to love him to build him up. God is not lacking anything that he needs us to love him. He is completely self-satisfying in himself. And he's completely self-sustaining, meaning he has all the love he needs in himself. He lacks nothing. He is entirely self-sufficient. He needs nothing from you and me. God commands us to love him because he is, and I don't know, my words failed me. And so I'll put it in simple terms. He is purely good. There is no injustice or any unrighteousness in him. Psalm 89, 14 puts it this way. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. This is your God. You see, when we look at God, we see that he is only good. How else do you describe him? And so when he commands us to love him, he's commanding us to love what is actually, truly, purely good. Do you see that? But this verse also brings into the discussion the issue of his love and defines his love as steadfast, immovable. It can't be shaken. But it's not just that his love is steadfast. His love is steadfast because 1 John 4, 8 tells us that God is love. Years ago, my father-in-law shared an important distinction with me that put love, I believe, in its proper perspective, and it's never left me. And he said to me, listen carefully, love is not God. But God is love. Let that sink in. Dwell on that. Love is not God. You see, there's an important distinction between how we view this statement. If love is God, then from our perspective, wherever love is found, whatever we're drawn to, whatever catches our emotions or our heart or our passions, well, then that must be right. That's where you land if love is God. On the other hand, if God is love, it's God who then sets the parameters of what love is and looks like. God is love. 
Now, the way this all comes together to help us understand why God can command you and me to love him and it not be abusive or narcissistic or wrong is actually found all the way back in the beginning, Genesis 1.26. And then God said, let us make God, or sorry, let, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then if you move on down to verse 27, he goes on and says, so God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So when we bring this all together, the reason God can command you and me to love him is because to love him is to love what is truly good. And it's also because we have been created in his image and we were created to express his love. And seeing that God is love, we learn what the deepest, truest, purest form of love actually is. So then the question is this, well then what is love? How do we define what it means to love God? Jesus said in verse 30, we're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength. When you sum that up, in essence, it's simply to say, love God with everything that you are. But what does that look like? Well, the word, the word used here, the Greek is the word agapao, which is actually the verb form or the action form of it. And it comes from the word agape. And I don't want to turn this into a Greek lesson, but I think this will help us kind of define what we need to understand about love. And so yes, the word here used agapao comes from the word agape, which is different from a love that we're familiar with known as eros. Eros is where we get the word erotic. But I wanna just say, let's be careful with how that how we define that word erotic, because you hear the word erotic, and we know where our mind goes when we hear that, but the reality is that word erotic is kind of like a junk drawer term. It just, let me explain. Eros is directed towards things or people that make me feel good. For example, when I say to someone, I love you, it includes the notion of how you make me feel, right? And there's a number of things that we express this eros for or towards. It's, it's eros is rooted in emotion and feeling. And it's what the, the Roman philosophy of love is built on. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but that term romantic love is built on eros love. And the Roman philosophy was, well, love must be rooted in feeling. And so it became known as the term was developed romantic love. And we have bought into this romantic philosophy or this Roman philosophy that if it doesn't meet this passion or if it doesn't meet this emotion within you, it's not love. 
That is just the most basic elementary concept of love. So just hold on to this. Eros is love that's rooted in emotion. And then we have a different love, which is phileia or phileo. And this is referenced to as a brotherly love, the affection that we have towards friends and, uh, and more like family, if you will. It, it's, it's love that's based on like-mindedness. Phileia includes shared interests, common goals, or, you know, you, the, those personalities that just collect, they seem to get each other, and they instantly become friends, and you have a love for one another. Well, that's not eros, that's phileia, or phileo. It's a love that describes appreciation, respect, kindness, and a, uh, a commonness. Common goals, common interests, and that's what connects you. There's something that you have in common that, that makes you click. So eros, remember, is how it makes you feel. Phileia is an affection rooted in connectedness, like-mindedness, things we have in common. But neither one of these is actually what Jesus is talking about here. What Jesus is talking about is agape. Agape goes beyond passions or feelings. It, be, it goes beyond natural, uh, natural affection of like-mindedness or phileia. Agape, listen carefully, agape love that's here in this text is a deep Rooted conviction, deeply rooted in a heart. And this conviction is a determined act of the will, which includes faithfulness, commitment, goodwill, and sacrifice for others. It's completely other oriented or others oriented. You see, Eros is completely about me, what makes me feel good. Phileo is about a common, it's you and me, what makes us connect. And then there's agape, which is completely others focused. I hope you can see the difference. And this is what he's talking about here. And this is to be our love and our attitude towards God. It's a love that is rooted in the conviction of the heart, not just up here, but in the heart that says, I must be faithful to God. I have no other choice, but I need to be. I am committed to God. And I will sacrifice myself for God and his purposes because he is worthy and he is love. But this, this agape love, although it's not first an emotion and it's not first like-mindedness, it's also not just simply a heady decision. But it is a conviction that is rooted in our hearts that we can't deny Oh, we can certainly love God with an eros love because of how he makes us feel. That's true. We can love God with a phileia because Jesus is our friend and our brother. But the greatest love 
is a conviction or the conviction of the heart that says, I must be faithful and I must be committed to God and I can't help but sacrifice myself for him. Here's the thing. This love here, this agape love, is the love with which God loves you and me. Now, it may to us sound like, well, it sounds like a lesser love than, than eros or phileo, but it's not. It's a much more intense and deeper rooted because guess what? Eros can stop. Phileo can stop. But agape love can't stop because it even leads to the sacrifice of ourselves. And this is a love with which God loved us. Now, as an example, we are all familiar with John 3, 16, one of the most famous verses in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But take that first phrase for a moment. For God so loved the world. And here's what we do this when we read this. And oftentimes how we preach it too. We say this. When we, when we read for God so loved the world, we interpret that as God loved the world so passionately or with such great emotion. That's how we read it. But a simple look in the original language shows that it's not eros and it's not even phileo. It's agape. What does that mean? That means this. If we were to interpret this verse properly, it would be translated something like this. For God demonstrated his love. Agape, his faithfulness, his commitment, his sacrifice towards you in this way. By giving his only son that all those who believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, this verse is not about the emotion with which God loves us. It's about agape love. And this, brothers and sisters, is how we are commanded to love God. And not just God, but our neighbor as well. We are to have this unresolved, deep-rooted conviction in our hearts and in our being that overflows into a determination that moves us to be faithful to him, committed to him, and sacrificing ourselves for him and for our neighbor. Why? Because righteousness and justice demands it in our heart. It's the right thing to do. And we can't get away from it. When that becomes a conviction, you can't get away from it. And it's much stronger than eros or phileia. But here's the thing. This love towards God in this fashion does not come to my heart or to your heart naturally. In our fallen, sinful state, you and I are unable to love God or others in this fashion. Do you know why that is? Because agape is the love of God. Agape is what emanates from him. 
So then the question is, well, if we can't love God this way, then how can we love God? Here's how. You and I need a new heart. And because God is love, agape, he gives. Ezekiel 36, 26. We read this. God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel said what he was going to do. And we have seen this fulfilled in Jesus through Jesus Christ. Here's what the prophet said. Or God said through the prophet Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart. Why? Why do we need a new heart? Because our old heart didn't just need to become better. Our old heart was a slave to sin and couldn't be saved. It needed to die. But I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Different motivations and loves and passions. And I will remove the heart of stone. There it is. That heart of stone that was resistant to God. Dead to God. But was completely bound in sin and death. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. Meaning a heart that is now pliable that he will shape and mold. And I will put my spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, with you or within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And God gives us this new heart and he gives us this new spirit when he puts his spirit within us, which happens when we are born again by faith in Jesus Christ. And then... Romans 5, 5 tells us that because we have been saved by grace through faith, that God's love, his agape love, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he's given to us. And that, brothers and sisters, that enables us to love God with agape love. But notice lastly, also in verse 31, that the second most important commandment is like the first, that you love your neighbor as yourself. Now, here's what I want to make sure we understand. Jesus is not saying you need to love yourself first. Let's be very clear on that. That's the message of the world. You need to love yourself first. That's not what Jesus is getting at. He's not saying... You need to love yourself more. What he's inferring here is that you already love yourself. And you ought to love your neighbor the way you love yourself. And there's one more question I want to answer. And that question is, well, who is my neighbor? Well, Here's the thing, we find it easy to love our neighbor when it's already someone we love. We love our close friends. We love the people that we have common interests together with. We love the people of our own family, although that sometimes is fractured, but hey, moving on. That's a sermon for another day. We love the people of our own culture. 
We love the people of our own ethnicities, right? Those are easy people to love. But Jesus is quoting Leviticus 19, 18 here. And when this was originally written to the Israelites, they also interpreted it as needing to love other Israelites. Well, who's my neighbor? Oh, my neighbor next door is another Israelite and another Israelite. Because remember, God had given them the land of Canaan and all the other nations were pushed out. But Jesus corrects this understanding. He gives them the actual or the proper interpretation. And we read about this in Luke 10 when a lawyer wanted to test Jesus and asked what he had to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus asked him, well, what does the law say? And in Luke 10, 27 to 29, we read this. This is the lawyer speaking now. He says, well, you shall love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, and with all your, sorry, with all your strength and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, well, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, that's the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? Right? And I won't take the time to read this, but take it on your own time, Luke chapter 10. Jesus goes on to tell the story of a man who gets beaten and robbed on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. And as this man is lying in the ditch, dying, a Jewish priest walks by, sees the guy, and says, nope. And he keeps walking by. Then a Levite, who also works in the temple of God, a Jewish temple worker, he walks by, sees the guy in the ditch. He's like, uh-uh. Keeps walking. And finally, a Samaritan comes. And he sees this guy. And he cares for the guy. And he bandages his wounds, puts him on his donkey or whatever it was, and takes him to a place where he can get the help that he needs and pays for his health care out of his own pocket. Now here's what we need to know. The Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans were often referred to as half-breeds, pigs, and dogs, and those weren't terms of endearment in a, in, a, in a heartwarming way. They were racist towards the Samaritans. And so having shared the story about the Samaritan and what he did for this priest, we read in Luke 10, 36 and 37, Jesus responds and asks them, which one of these three do you think proved to be a good, proved to be a neighbor to the man who had fell among robbers, verse 37. And he said, that's the lawyer, well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Who is my neighbor? Now, I'm not exegeting this passage in Luke 10, but that's a full sermon on its own, but who was the neighbor here? The Samaritan. What was his question? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus, in essence, is saying, the Samaritan. The person you're racist against. The person you hate. The person you want nothing to do with. The person... Maybe it's... 
the immigrant coming in that you don't think should be here. Maybe it's a race of people that has turned your heart towards them and you think they need to die. That's not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying here, that's your neighbor. That's your neighbor. Brothers and sisters, what has our attitude been to those that we despise, the ones that we hate, and the ones even though we wouldn't say it out loud, we have a racist attitude towards Jesus is literally calling him to love his enemy. And the Samaritan was his neighbor. And he should as well take care of those who have been hurt and down and out and beaten. If you love God, loving others looks like loving those who do not fit our category of people we typically find within our own circles and it includes those that we deem as our enemies. In conclusion, I want to leave two questions with us this morning. And I hope we can understand what the love of God is. The first one is this. Having seen what the love of God is in this passage... Ask yourself this question, do you find the love of God in your heart? Is the conviction and the determination rooted deeply in your heart to be faithful and committed to God and willing to sacrifice yourself for him? And to love your neighbor in the same way? Do you see the mission of Redemption Bible Chapel St. Thomas is actually based on this very passage. Our mission is this, to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission, which is to make disciples in the spirit of the Great Commandment, which is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Not your best friend who lives next door, the one who brought you cookies when you moved in, but the people that may actually be classified as our enemies, the ones that we look down our noses at and we can't stand. So are we committed to faithfully and sacrificially loving God at whatever cost? Secondly, is the conviction and the determination in our heart to be faithful and committed to God and willing to sacrifice ourselves not only for God, but for our neighbors, brothers and sisters. While we were yet his enemies, Christ died for us. That's agape love. In closing, as a church... We are striving towards living this out in a much more convictional, 
intentional and practical way. And so just recently, our elders were able to implement an outreach team here within the church, and we're still shoring things up and getting things lined up. But we've implemented a team who will work alongside with the elders to help us as a church move in this direction to live this conviction out more intentionally. So in the coming year, our hope is that as a church, we'll become well acquainted with this team. And so as we consider what agape love looks like in us as a church, at this point, I want to ask one of the members of this team, Becky Ung, to come up and share a few thoughts with us. Becky, are you here? There you are. Good morning, church. Uh, what a beautiful reminder and invitation for us to um, begin to look a little bit beyond uh, ourselves and our needs. Um, so I think lots of us do want to reach out kind of past ourselves, our families, our own immediate needs. And sometimes when we think about that, um, we immediately go to like the big needs, like the Samaritan reaching out to the man beside um, the road. We think, oh man, I need to invite someone to come live in my house who really needs that, or I need to go to a soup kitchen. And um, those are wonderful things, and God may call us to do that. But I think sometimes we need to break it down into just little steps. And I love the... Um, the invitation to remind us about our, the Great Commission is just as you go. So Jesus is commanding us there, as you go about your life, um, be telling others about me, be reaching out. So um, I think if we begin to just break this challenge and um, invitation down, we're really just as we go about our jobs, as we are neighbors, as we get coffee from the same place, uh, we are building relationships or mm -hmm. we have the opportunity to do that. When we're at the grocery store, we can pick up some snacks for maybe a, a, a child in our child's class who doesn't have a lot um, or uh, text our neighbor as we're heading to the grocery store, ask if they need something. Uh, a mom with a newborn, can I pick you up anything when I'm going there anyway? Again, we just wanna to begin to think about the places we're already going. Where does God have us to be looking around and seeing the needs that are already there? So just if we think about this week, those baby steps of just asking God, okay, as I'm dropping my kids off, as I'm going to work, as I'm staying at home as I'm meeting my neighbor at the mailbox. Uh, will you just show me, God, uh, their needs, how I can um, bless them, how I can uh, open my life a little bit for the space of this relationship? And so that's, I think, where we're hoping to uh, just begin, um, break that down from this big outreach thing down to the places we're already going and the people we already know how can we think a little bit beyond ourselves and, and invite God to show us what do you want me to know, what do you want me to do? We have a chance um, to partner with Fresh Start this Christmas, uh, which is a, an organization here in St. Thomas that seeks to meet the needs of 
especially single moms and their kids. And so we have an opportunity to buy some socks and mitts and a hat for uh, kids in the families they support. If that's something that you would like to do, you are welcome to get your phone out now. Um, there's a spot under events in the Church Center app if you've got that. Um, or going directly to our website, rbcstthomas.ca backslash events, and um, it's there. Uh, and we've just got it where you can sign up for one or two or whatever you would like to do. We've got the ages of the kids and kind of those sizes there. And um, if, if you want to put a note in your phone now, you are welcome if that, if you aren't able to navigate those sites. Uh, I'm not able to navigate those sites always on the spot. Uh, so just write yourself a note, go back later this week to um, uh, check in there and see how you can help. And that's just one little way that we can support our community. And um, thanks, Jake, for that invitation. Oh yeah, you're my <laughs> double mind. That's right. Thank you, Becky, for sharing, sharing that with us. So we want to begin with small steps. Thank you for sharing that, Becky. And folks, we want to be a church that's not eyes in, but eyes out. It's the only way we can actually express agape love, the love with which God has loved us and has poured into our hearts that we now return back to God and to our neighbors. So I would invite you and encourage you to be a part of this and look forward to hearing much more from the outreach team moving ahead.